Welcome to Hope Through Hard Stuff, a podcast from Winning at Home. Please welcome your host, speaker, and award-winning author, Steve Norman. Welcome back to Hope Through Hard Stuff. I'm immensely honored to have as my conversation partner today, Rabbi Josh Bennett. He is of Temple Israel in West Bloomfield, Michigan. Uh, he and I kind of ran in similar circles not all that long ago. We know each other from clergy land. We know each other from suburban soccer in Detroit. Rabbi Josh, thank you so much for taking time to join us today. It's a real pleasure. I'm I'm happy to be talking with you again. I always enjoy our time together. Rabbi Josh, for people uh, who aren't necessarily familiar with just streams of Judaism, talk a little bit about Temple Israel and how you landed there. Just like in Christianity, Judaism is divided essentially in denominations that move from the far right and traditional to the far left and modern and liberal. Temple Israel is on the left side of that spectrum. We are in a congregation called uh, Temple Israel based on uh, an allegiance to Israel and Zionism, but we are planted and rooted firmly in what is known as the Reform Movement of Israel. Reform Movement is uh, about 200 years old and is a response very much like Protestantism is a response to the, the right of Christianity. Reform Judaism is to the left of Judaism. And actually the words I think are important to understand that the Protestant Reformation is the same as Jewish reform. The words are, are there similar. So we're left-leaning on the left side of the Jewish world. And Rabbi Josh, how did you find yourself taking steps towards being, being a rabbi? It's a great question because I never imagined myself in this place, different from many of my uh, pastor and and, and uh, minister friends who see themselves as having a calling. I thought I was going to be an attorney. That was my calling. Uh, of course, I hated my political science courses, and uh, that led me to psychology. And psychology led me to an understanding of people. But what really drove me to the rabbinate was my time both as the little brother of a rabbi. So I saw being a rabbi as a legitimate career choice, but also my time spent in Jewish summer camping, where I understood that the balance between faith and the rest of the world was something that I was intrigued by and something that I found an attraction to in both a spiritual way, but also in a physical way. So this idea of being able to, to be with people through their challenges and their joys and use faith as my tools really was the driving force. And here I am 30 years later, still at Temple Israel, my first and only job in one of the most unique and wonderful congregations in the world. Well, it's always a pleasure to hear you talk about the work that you and Temple are doing. I'm honored to have an opportunity to watch it from afar. Rabbi, one of the reasons I wanted to reach out to you is there, there are having in, increasing conversations just in the news, in the media, in popular culture about Judaism and about anti-Semitism and how certain people are, are interpreting or viewing the Jewish community or Jewish challenges. And we're seeing that in politics. We're seeing that in pop culture. My kids are 18, 16, 13, and 12, and we've had a litany of conversations about Kanye West and what he said and what he did or didn't mean about the Jewish people. And I know it's I know it's a big, big tangled knot, but could you could you, as somebody who is a, a leader in the Jewish community, help us in the evangelical community maybe start to understand that complexity of issues in ways that we wouldn't be able to do on our own? Thank you for observing and acknowledging that this is a complicated subject 
And it has many, many tentacles that we'll have to unpack one at a time as we have this conversation together. But I think the most important reference point is the idea of what Ecclesiastes says, that there is nothing new under the sun, that this is an age-old challenge of hatred and fear of the unknown and the other that has plagued our world and certainly our Jewish community for thousands of years. So the roots of Jewish reality consider, or connected to anti-Semitism is nothing new. The words are nothing new. The, the tropes are nothing new. These are things that have been part of the Jewish communal experience for generations. I, I think it's important to recognize where some of the roots of this begin, because we can't talk about what's happening today without understanding where it comes from. So uh, although there are also biblical roots of some of this information, some of the anti-Semitism that we're seeing. One of the things that I really want to talk about as maybe a, an opening conversation here is the idea of why Jewish communities are often seen as powerful and aggressive when it comes to money and leadership. In order to understand that, we have to look back at our history as a people, a minority, living in a majority society where in many cases, the Jewish community was not allowed to own property. Really anybody who wasn't the leadership was not allowed to own property. So if you're not allowed to own property and you are kicked out of your land or kicked out of your home, the only thing left for you to do is to transfer all of your belongings into monetary form. And when you arrive in a new country or a, a new place, you have one thing with you, and that is money. And so that money allowed us to historically become people in, for example, the money lending industry. And if Jews are the ones charging interest to others, to non-Jews, that can be misconstrued as powerful, money-oriented peoples. So when you look at it from that historical perspective, and, and, and we can sort of pick apart all of the various pieces of anti-Semitism or, or the, the ideological pieces of anti-Semitism that have sustained themselves, we see this problem of a misunderstanding of who we are. It's not that we, as a community, are necessarily more involved in the world of money and power. It's simply that our position in the world and our aggressiveness to get out of those challenging positions has appeared to be success that is equated to the negative connotations. So looking at that, it's not a surprise that when a person is successful, somebody's jealous of that success. And a lot of that jealousy then gets translated into some of these anti-Semitic tropes that are thousands of years old. Yeah. And I, I, I mean, I remember being a, a a high school student taking an English class and reach, reading The Merchant of Venice and back in Shakespearean times like this was a, this was truly incorporated at least into the English or Northern European psyche that 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 was that this trope that you're identifying was already deeply rooted in society at that time. Is that is that a fair assessment? It is. And it's actually even bigger than that, because when you come to modern times, you see many of those ancient tropes being transferred into modern tools for destruction. So uh, although it, it's difficult to talk about the Holocaust in, in three minutes, 
one of the things that the Nazis did in order to promote their idea that there was an Aryan race or a culture that was higher than everyone else was to demonize Jewish people and other people for their traits. And one of the ways that they did that was by turning those tropes into very, very dangerous stereotypes. So if you look at some of the imagery of the Nazis during the Holocaust, it would take the physical features of the Jewish people, which were sort of normal Northern and Eastern European physical features, big noses, some of the issues with uh, traditional Jews wearing long side curls, those were made out to portray us as bugs. So if you put that that bug-like or that, that creature on top of a globe with a dollar sign on it, it seems to imply that here's the, the, the vermin of the earth also in charge of the money of the earth. And that, that's a people that we can just exterminate like you would a bug. And so what the Nazis tried to do, and, and maybe it's okay to suggest that that's part of what Kanye was trying to do, is portray the Jews as demon-like. And if that community of others is demon-like or, or parasite-like, then it's okay to eliminate them. It's okay to discriminate against them. And quite frankly, it's okay to push them off to the side where they don't matter any longer in our society. So as, as you see that, that kind of issue snowballing throughout history, how, how does the advent of, of, of the internet and social media compound those communications, those images, those ideologies? Obviously, it only makes things worse. In the same way that internet is not the cause of depression and anxiety in the world, those sure. things predate the internet. It's hard to argue that the internet, social media has not made those issues more prominent in our modern world. So it in, in Hebrew, in rabbinic literature, there's a concept called kal v'chomer. If it works for the easy thing, how much more it is for the hard thing. So mm. if social media has made it more difficult for things like anxiety and depression because we're watching other people do things that we wish we could do, how much the more so in the very dangerous things like hatred and the stuff that we're seeing on 4chan and 8chan and some of the QAnon platforms, how much the more so in those very dangerous things is the internet allowing people to grow those anti-attitudes? And by the way, it's not just anti-Semitism. I think it's fair to say that it's anti-other, anti-unknown. And that's why also racism has to be a part of this conversation um, any, anywhere where we see the other being demonized, the internet seems to make it more easily accessible to understand and digest those ideas. There's no easy solution. There's not, there's not a quick fix, but one of the things that some researchers of adolescent and faith journey, especially in Christian subcultures have identified, they said, most kids are, are asking three big questions. It's who am I? Where do I fit? And what's my role in this world? And, and again, I know this is an oversimplification of the theory, but some, some people are actually positing that part of the reason that there's been such a, a seedbed or a kind of a greenhouse acceleration of anti-Semitism is that there's an entire generation of, of, of young, young people, not necessarily teenagers, but young adults 
who they don't, they don't, they feel isolated. They feel horribly alone. And the internet is a, a means for them to establish some sense of community, even if it's just connecting with complete strangers around really toxic ideologies. How, how, how does that theory strike you? I think it's undeniable that the internet allows somebody to hide behind a screen, to hide behind their keyboard and to feel something that they may not be feeling in the rest of the world. And it's important that we talk about this for a minute because it's one of the places that I think our faith communities have the opportunity to press away evil and allow light to shine. Because when we bring people into our churches, into our synagogues, into our mosques, we are actually also bringing them in contact with other people. Sitting behind a computer, exacerbated by the isolation of COVID, exacerbated by a growing world culture that is just big, right? Remember, you and I grew up in times when there were three or four or five television channels. Now there's 300 television channels and the internet. The amount of information is so isolating that the world of faith communities offers people a place to connect with others in a human way that I believe is the antidote to what you're talking about in terms of the isolation that we're seeing with kids, young adults, and people who are on the fringe, people who can't quite figure out who they are, as you said, that, that powerful question that we all seek to answer throughout our lives. I'm so glad to hear you say that, Josh. And I'm just, I'm recalling the experiment that you and I tried, however many years ago it was, where we brought representatives from our respective faith communities just to explore a, a shared common biblical text together. Uh, not to say like, hey, what do you believe or what do I believe? But what's a core shared belief that we might have? And, and if we were to pull on that thread, how might we be able to understand and appreciate how much commonality we have and where we are different, how to be able to celebrate and dignify those differences, even if they remain differences? I agree with that. And I'll just add one more piece to the puzzle here. You, you mentioned this idea that uh, the isolation grows with this separation, right? The more we are separated, the more that we are in our own space, in our own brains, in a, a society that's just pouring information in, the more need there is to slow that all down and to ask those powerful why and what questions, because mm -hmm. Those meditative thoughts actually beat away the evil. In other words, if I'm asking myself, who am I? Part of my discovery of who I am is to understand who you are. And in this relationship, and I'm talking specifically you and me, but it, but it works for anybody, we learn about another human being and that then gets placed against my answers about who I am. And I can both hear you, understand you, and define myself. If I'm absent of that, if it's all just pouring at me from a computer screen, that's who I am. And I get sucked into uh, extremism or otherism that I think is really, really dangerous. Yeah, Josh, and in the face of, of deep divisions, whether they're cultural divisions or political divisions or racial divisions, I, I think one of the great great contributions that that faith leaders and people of faith have to bring together especially in the judeo-christian tradition is our shared belief that in the in the creation narrative whether you believe that that's a a literal creation narrative or a figurative creation narrative that whole idea that that men and women are created in fact in the image of god 
that's a core ideology. And when that gets lived out, it, it has to manifest itself in honor and shared dignity and affirmation and in celebration of, of a person's worth simply because uh, they belong to God. They're created by God. And even, to, even if it's only at, at a sliver, they reflect an aspect of God's majesty and character. I totally agree with what you're saying. And you used, I think, an intentional word in that statement. It is a creation narrative. First of all, you and I were not there. We know what we believe, but we don't know factually what happened. Sure. And I think that understanding that everything that drives us as faith leaders is a narrative is something that maybe we should talk about for a minute here, because there are multiple narratives in the world and understanding that there are multiple narratives in the world is very helpful in this conversation about hatred, anti-Semitism, racism, because my experience in the world may be different from the way you perceive my experience in the world. And one of the ways that I think we're gonna have to deal with this whole question of anti-Semitism is to be able to start hearing other people's narratives. So Josh, tell us a little bit about your narrative, because when when you and I were both having some conversations, my initial entree into our relationship was doctoral work that I was doing on the issues of evangelicalism in Israel-Palestine. And Temple Israel was holding a political action uh, committee seminar. I think there was an APAC event that was be held at your congregation. And I remember having to go through a metal detector to get into the event. It was odd to me because never once in my life had I entered a metal detector in a house of worship. But when I was talking to you and others who were gathered, that was kind of of par for the course. Maybe not every day, but at least in certain circumstances. Talk about about why, why that's normal and why that wasn't a surprise to you. That normal has actually become even more challenging in a modern world. Today, when you come to the typical evangelical church around the country, I, I don't think, do you have any guards that are that are sitting outside or do you just have greeters? We have greeters, but, but, but again, this is, this is changing within the last couple of years as well. The last church that I served at, they hired external armed security forces and that was, that was controversial. We are seeing some more of that. So at Temple Israel, we have a team of full-time and part-time professional security managers who are armed and on-site, including an incredible partnership with the West Bloomfield Police Department, who gives us members of the, the department every single worship service, every single program that we have at Temple Israel. Our building is covered with cameras. We have a uh, a device that allows us to press a button and immediately have cameras turn on and uh, contact with the police departments. This is the regular life of living in a religious institution today in the Jewish community. What that means is I'm ever aware of the dangers. When I go to work every day, my wife is concerned about the fact that I'm sitting in my office as a target of the people who are online and in public circles talking about the demise of the Jewish people. Now, we're lucky because we have an awareness of that. But as you said, for the other person walking in, that's disorienting and a challenge. So when we talk about the narrative of the Jewish experience, we've always seen ourselves as at risk that if you look back through history, you see the Spanish Inquisition, 
and Jews forced out of their homes and homelands and forced into conversions. If you look at the Holocaust, you see Jews forced out of their lands and their homes. And if you look at modern Israel, there is this unique new narrative about whose land is it anyway? Is it Palestinian land? Is it Jewish land? And what does it mean to defend one's faith, defend one's home? And how do we balance that against the narrative of others who are living in that space? So we've we've gone from metal detectors in our modern American society, which feels very foreign, to an Israeli experience, which is simply living with the threat of violence every single day. And that is a powerful mechanism that we deal with that I think has entered into the souls of who we are. And so there's a defensiveness, there's a reactionary nature that's beyond politics. It's a soul level experience of a Jewish person that feels attacked all the time. So Josh, what, what does that do to you as an individual and as a family to, to be living day in and day out with that level of hypervigilance? What's the cost emotionally, psychologically, spiritually? So first of all, it, it's, a, it's a normal. So I don't spend my days worrying about this. I, okay. I, I, I simply can't put that energy to it, right? It's not, it's not in my nature. Uh, maybe I'm naive. Maybe I simply believe that in general, there is good in the world. Uh, I really do believe that. And so I, I, I just can't live in that anxiety of threat. Having said that, it's a constant awareness. When I walk around the building of Temple Israel, I have in my pocket an emergency device that, that uh, I can press a button and alert the police. So it's it's a really strange dichotomy of emotions to on the one hand be so positive so naive in my experience because i'm i'm just doing my work as a faith leader and on the other hand i have to be so defensive remember it was just a year ago that uh, a rabbi in texas was held hostage by somebody who uh, just on a saturday morning was worshiping so you know the, it's it's a really strange place to be between those two poles of who I really am. Josh, a couple of weeks ago, I, when we were talking about having this conversation, I sent you an, a link to an article that I that made me call you to mind in the recent election, the midterm elections this last fall, there was a particular politician who was being accused of uh, verbalizing some anti-Semitic theology. And his wife at a press conference said, we can't be anti-Semitic because we love Israel. We've been there X number of times. That's a paraphrase. Talk a little bit about how evangelicals can be un, unconsciously or unassumingly compounding some of these issues rather than helping to resolve them. So first of all, I need to answer by clarifying something. Nobody in the Jewish community sees an evangelical love of Israel as anything but a positive emotional tie to your faith. So if we're honest, there's nothing wrong with that belief system. And quite frankly, it's also powerfully good for the Jewish people and for the state of Israel to have allies who believe in the state of Israel as an important part of their faith, right? That it's good to have friends, even if you don't agree with everything in another person's agenda. That's the way I live my life. I don't want to live in a world where 
if I don't agree with everything you believe in, I can't be your friend. That's absurd. Otherwise, we wouldn't be having this conversation. Exactly right. And sadly, it's sort of where we are in our country right now. You know, we've seen friendships be destroyed by politics. Having said that, it's an interesting problem to deal with if we don't really understand each other's stories and understand why Israel is important to you and why Israel is important to me. And those may be two very different stories that are somehow conflicting. So I don't have an answer for your actual question, which is how might that be a misleading or challenging statement for Jews? But I do know that we need to start talking about what is actually behind your thoughts, your faith, your experience with regard to Israel. So I'm going to turn it back to you. What does it mean for a evangelical Christian to love Israel? It's a great question. I think it depends on how we're defining uh, love, right? And in in some instances, how we're defining Israel, because that can get defined in a lot of different ways as well. I think in my journey and in my research, Josh, one of the things I've learned through observation is it possible for people to love the idea of Israel as an entity and not necessarily be fully vested in the honor, dignity, and aspiration of individual Jewish people and families. In the Jewish community, it's the same, right? If you look back historically at the evolution of the actual modern state of Israel, there were more than one vision of what it meant to be a Zionist. So sure. when Theodor Herzl is dreaming of a Jewish state, specifically because he saw anti-Semitism in France in the Dreyfus case, what he was creating or thinking for himself was a political state, an entity that could be a homeland for Jewish people. But at the same time, there were other forms of Zionism, right? The early forms of Zionism were spiritual Zionism, people who dreamed of a spiritual home for the Jews. There were political Zionists like Herzl, but there were also what we refer to as religious Zionists, like uh, a man named Rav Cook, who was looking just for a religious connection to the ancient land. And there were labor Zionists who simply saw this as a, a chance to take a holy space and to dig their hands in the earth and build. Those are the early founders of the kibbutzim, the communal movements in Israel that sort of built the infrastructure of the modern land. All of those people defined Israel differently. And today, people define Israel. So there's the people of Israel, there's the land of Israel, there's the the spiritual Israel. Those are very different. and, And I think they get confused sometimes when we talk. Right. And I think that in the Christian tradition, and you and I have had conversations about this before, part of the challenge was that in the in the 70s, when evangelicals kind of early forming and as Israel was in very um, important stages of its own growth and development, there was a there was this burgeoning love for Israel among evangelicals. But the uh, but the subtext was that we needed certain we not talking about me personally, I'm talking about evangelicals um, at large needed certain things to happen in Israel's future and in their military context in order for certain Christian interpretations for Jewish end time prophecies to be fulfilled. That's that's a mouthful. There's a lot of different layers of that. There's the whole conversation for another day. But my concern has always been that certain streams of evangelical love for Israel was rooted in a need for Israel or Jewish people to be pawns in some kind of apocalyptic endgame. And that always felt icky to me. Yeah, let's let's just 
simplify it a little bit. You talked about end of days. We're talking about a place that in, in modern Israel is called Megiddo. In the biblical narrative, we talk about Har Megiddo, the mountain of Megiddo, which if you listen to the word is right. Armageddon, right? So in order for Armageddon to happen, there has to be that, as you described it, a series of things that occur in the Jewish community. And the land of Israel is simply a path towards the second coming of the Messiah for the Christian community. Well, that right. is a direct opposition to the faith understanding of Judaism, which is the Messiah has not arrived. So right. on a very deep faith level, the love of Israel that you're describing from the early evangelical community is actually seeking the demise of the Jewish people in order for the Messiah to return. Boy, that's heavy. That's heavy. Right, right. And I and so for me, I I think the one thing that I would want to encourage my constituents to be mindful of is just just beware any worldview that needs you to love Israel as a means to an end, as some kind of theological end game. Or I think that there was some really good and bona fide pushback against this kind of thinking that has caused people like John Hagee and others to to reframe their verbiage. And rather than talking about Israel against the backdrop of an apocalyptic end time scenario, they they will invoke Genesis chapter twelve, which says, um, you know, God's promise to Abraham: those who who you bless, I will bless. So there's a, another version which is this different route, but has the same result that people say like, oh, well, I'll bless Israel so that God will bless me. I'll say nice things about the Jewish people so that I can make my mortgage payment on time. Again, oversimplification, not intended to insult anybody. But similarly, I see love of Israel or love of Jewish people as a means for me to get some sort of financial or spiritual kickback, which is not honoring or humanizing Jews or Israelis or anybody else along the way. Those are some of the kind of concerns that I'm bringing to the table. Does that make any sense? It, it does. And I, I love that you and I are able to have these conversations. These are for your listeners very hard conversations. So I love that we're sort of demonstrating it in this conversation so that maybe they can have these conversations in the real world, in their communities. Because as a Jewish person, I often hear more so evangelical Christians, but all Christians say things like, oh, no, 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 we love the Jews. We can't be anti-Semitic. I love the Jews. And that's what you're saying. It's sort of a patronizing statement right. I love the Jews because I need X, Y, and Z for my own fulfillment as a Christian. Uh, that's ignoring that there are other narratives. And by the way, we Jewish people also struggle with this because uh, connected also to Israel, there's the narrative you raised, the blessing of Abraham and Abraham's progeny. But for the Muslim community, part of Abraham's progeny was Ishmael. And right. that's the beginning of a very different faith tradition. Again, right. whose land is it? Who deserves this progeny blessing? And is that, can they both coexist? And that, that's really a question that I'm struggling with. How can we get to a place where all of those narratives can coexist, even though the Jewish narrative of Judea and Samaria being Jewish God-given land is different from the Palestinian narrative of this land somehow having a connection to their history and different from the Christian narrative of this land being a pathway to the Messiah. They're all true if they're seen only insularly by their own communities, 
how do they coexist together? It's very complex and I, I don't have a great answer. Well, you can't answer this. As we wrap up, talk about tikkun olam. I, that's always been one of my favorite principles that you've discussed in the past. What does that mean in the Jewish tradition and how can Christians and Jews partner together in seeing that vision fulfilled? I love that that's where you're turning this conversation because it is really a solution. So specifically, the words tikkun olam mean repairing the world. Tikkun is a repair Olam is the world. And it comes from a mystical medieval concept by a rabbi named Rabbi Isaac Luria, who posited that there was at the creation moment a, an energy of God needing to create the world. And in order to make room for the work of creation, God had to shrink. Uh, it's called Sibnsum in Hebrew. It's a, a contraction of the God self. In that contraction, the universe, which was sort of, uh, you, you might think of it as a glass marble, imploded. Sounds a lot like the Big Bang Theory, actually, if you, uh, if you, if you juxtapose it to science. But in that implosion and explosion of the vessels of creation, when God contracted to make room for creation, Shards of imperfect glass went everywhere. And it is our job as modern humanity to find those pieces of God's entity and put them back together. Hmm. That work of tikkun olam, of finding the pieces of God and fusing them back together, is creating the perfection that we are all seeking. It is what we do when we listen to somebody else, when we have hard conversations without defensiveness, without accusing somebody of something, and without positing that I'm better than you are. Hmm. When we talk about this anti-Semitism in the world, it all goes back to this idea that somehow I'm better, I'm different, and I'm going to use those differences to hurt you or to put you into a lower position in the world. That's the opposite of tikkun olam. Tikkun olam is hearing, understanding, and fusing different realities of God's creation together. Steve, I believe that my Jewish family, my Christian friends, my Muslim friends, others in the world are all children of God. And if that's true, then all of us need to find a way to fuse our ideas our relationships. And if we can do that, then we are creating a more perfect world. That's what I'm aspiring to as a rabbi. I, I can't think of a better way to, to end our conversation. Rabbi Josh, if people want to, are in the Detroit area and they want to find out more about Temple Israel and the work that you're doing, how can they get in touch? First of all, you can always go to the website, www.temple-israel.org. But more importantly, our building, our classes, our spaces, our structure, our community is open to anybody. So if you're in the Detroit area and you want to stop by Temple Israel for a worship service on a Friday night, we'd love to have you. If you want to call me or email me, I'd love to talk. I'd love to have those conversations. It's been something for me in my career that's sustained me. Steve, personally, our relationship really sustains me and elevates me. I love every time we talk because I end these conversations with more questions 
and more challenges that make me a better person. Well, thank you so much. And one of these days, I'm going to make good on that promise for us to get to Israel together. I don't, I'm not sure how we're going to swing it, but this this side of our, our lifetimes, we'll, we'll make it happen. All right. Love it. Cannot wait. Thanks so much. Have a blessed day. Thanks for listening to Hope Through the Hard Stuff. If you liked what you heard, please remember to subscribe to it, rate and review it, and then share it with others. Winning at Home offers hope through counseling and coaching, motivational speaking, community events, and other media resources. If you believe in what we do and want to support us in our mission, consider making a donation at winningathome.com.